Forget selling. Think of relationship building. That you want to do a long-term relationship with them. I'd like the rest of your life to, in this industry, mm. be the person you rely on. Selling is a business of cycles. The benefits and value they receive for the dollars they have to exchange for it. Suddenly this amount of money is not as important as what they will receive long-term. I have learned over the years that every no is hiding the yes. Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today we talk to Tom Thumb, Mr. Tom Hopkins. Tom Hopkins is known as America's number one sales trainer and builder of sales champions, as well as the number two sales guru in the world. He still holds the record today for selling 365 homes in a year and has closed 1,553 real estate transactions in just six short years. That record still holds today. Tom is the author of 18 books, including How to Master the Art of Selling, which has sold over 1.7 million copies worldwide. When we talk about old school selling and the fundamentals and the science that never changes, this is going to be a compelling and incredibly educational interview. Check it out. Listen up. Tom Thumb Hopkins. Tom Hopkins, what can I say? Having one of the greatest legends of sales on Unstoppable is a real honor and a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm flattered, Kerwin, and I also feel that just in me studying your, your company, your attitude, your goals, and what you've done, gosh, what you've done, we have a lot of common ground. Indeed. I've always, I've always told people in the field of sales and marketing and building a business, commonality is a big C word, mm. and it really gets you to tune in with a person because you're having the same basic philosophies, belief systems, and so forth. So I'm flattered. No, oh, it's an honor. And you know, as I was mentioning before we before we started rolling, uh, this is a beautiful moment for me because I actually read your your book, Mastering Out of Sales, almost 20 years ago now, and it was <laughs> one of those books that I read at a time, and it was actually literally in the, within the same three months I read Brian's book. Um, uh, the, 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 the psychology of selling. And yeah, your book really touched me in a very powerful way because I was, you know, I was lost in many respects. I was just starting out and I was, I realized I was not a good employee. I had to work for myself, but I knew in order to succeed for myself that I had to learn how to sell, um, which is incredible. And you've gone on, you know, with not only your book, but everything you do to become you know, the number one sales trainer in the US. You know, you're one of the, the top sales trainers in the world. <laughs> I well, pinch myself. Honestly. I, we're hitting our 5,000th one-day seminar wow. this next year, and 5 million folks have come. That's incredible. Program. So it's been, it's been a wonderful life. I, so how did you get involved in sales in the first place? Like, where did it all begin? Well, I'll tell you really quick the background. Um, yeah. I, uh, at 17, left high school. Where were you born? It, I was, was born in California, Southern California, yeah. raised there. And went to parochial schools my whole 12 years. And I wasn't a good student. And I barely graduated from high school. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And my dad said, you've got to go to college if you're going to be a success. And I said, okay, you know, mind your dad. And I went to college for three months. I couldn't take it. It wasn't for me. So I quit college after 90 days. What were you studying? 
uh, Bachelor of Science. Yeah, right. And anyway, I came home midterm, three months, and my dad comes home from work, and he says, what are you doing home? I says, Dad, I made a decision today. College is not for me, and I quit college. And my dad was a very strong, good man. And I swear, in all these years, 17 years being with him, I'd never seen him cry. And tears filled his eyes. And he said, Tom, you're my son, and because of that, I'll always love you. Even though based on your decision not to go to college, I know you will never amount to anything. Oh, wow. Now, Did I, you have a good relationship with your dad? Oh, yeah. yeah, but yeah. See, this was a defining moment. And this is very much the consciousness back oh, then, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And, and all, many people, folks joining us on this program, I guarantee if they research their life and if they are somewhat successful or very successful, they had a defining moment that something happened that made them decide, I'm not going to fail. Mm. And when my dad said I'd never amount to anything, I went in my room I sat down, I was very depressed, 17 depressed, not knowing what I would do with my life. And that night, my uncle, uh, Uncle Don, came to dinner, and he walked into my room, I'm sitting in there, and he says, Tommy, you quit college? I said, Uncle Don, I'm not an academic person. I don't like going there, and I quit. He says, what are you going to do with your life? I said, I have no idea. He says, well, listen, as you know, I'm a general contractor building bridge decks from L.A. to San Francisco, and we need iron workers. And I can get, he said, I can get you a permit, and you can become an iron worker. And Kerwin, iron workers are the hardest physical laborers in the world. Eight hours a day, you carry steel like an animal. Wow. And... A human forklift. Yeah, because I was young, and they knew that the general manager was my my uh, uncle. They worked me to death. I mean, I'm five seven inches, and I tell audiences when I started carrying steel, I was six foot two. <laughs> but look what, look what happened to me. But I, I carried steel for a year, and my wow. dad came to my little apartment. I had to move out of my house with my dad because we were at odds and my dad came to my little apartment and he says Tom I came by because Uncle Don tells me you're the hard hardest working iron worker on the job carrying steel mm. and I want to tell you I'm proud of you oh, wow. first time he'd ever said that Wow! and of course the second time he ever said that was when I'd set a goal and I always have been goal-oriented Goal to get a first car because I didn't have when I had a motorcycle. Showing real estate, having people follow me on a motorcycle. So I wanted a car. So I got a picture of a car. I got a car. And then I wanted, after 10 years, I set a goal to have a Learjet, a plane. So I got my jet. Wow. And all of my life, I have been taking pictures of the things I want. And then, of course, what's wonderful about sales, and in my business, which was eight years in real estate, you know, if you, if you sell a lot of real estate and buy a lot of real estate, you're going to make a lot of money. And so that's why I was so blessed mm. to find real estate as the product, the service, in essence, getting people a new home. But um, it has been amazing. I pinched myself. Uh, then, of course... Uh, Can I ask a question? Yeah. 
like uh, you, you were the hardest worker in the room um, yeah. carrying steel. Right. And so it seems to me that work ethic was built somewhere. Like you, you had a level of grit and a level of resilience, obviously for someone your age that far surpassed many of the older gentlemen that you're working with on site. Where did that grit develop? Like were you a, a sportsman? Were yes. You a, right. I think it really started because I, I played football starting when I was eight years of yeah, age. Yeah, right. And I played in the peewees and I played in high school. Then I, and I and I, I was a quarterback, so I got to control as far as making decisions. Right. And we took our little, our little our uh, little school to a national championship, which had never really? been done. So that was that was the highlight. And I think that background of winning, mm. competing, saying I'm going to be the best. You're a competitor. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and then of course I'd never really won anything other than football stuff. So when I went into real estate, I, I went to work for the largest then individual, independently owned real estate company in California. This is before there were franchises. Right. No Century 21, no red carpets, none of those companies existed. How did real estate get on your radar? How do you go from steel to real estate? Well, what happened here, it's another story. Uh, my dad called me one day, he said, son, you know, I, I'm proud of the job you're doing in steel. But I don't know if you want to do that your, the rest of your life. And my, my, uh, uh, um, one of my friends has a real estate company, and he knows that you got a nice way with people. Why don't we get you a real estate license? Right away, my self-image. I said, Dad, I could never pass an exam. Mm. And... He says, you can. Well, he chided me, and Uncle Don chided me, and they all said, get your license. Well, sure enough, I failed the real estate exam three times. And the fourth time I passed, and that is when I, I was hired by this company. They had the largest company then in the United States in real estate as far as the number, and I set a goal to be the top salesperson. And I didn't start off well. I only made one little sale in the first six months. But I did, in essence, what people do with you and I now. I found a mentor, and this man was a master guru of the art of closing the sale. Uh, J. Douglas Edwards was his name. Back then, we only had big black records. We didn't have cassettes yet. <laughs> He was like the, the first iteration of, one of the first iterations of sales trainers in oh, the yeah. US. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, and his record outsold every record ever. We didn't have cassettes yet, as I said, but I listened to that darn record hundreds of times, mastered every word of every closing strategy, and I went to his three-day and just studied, slept two hours for two, a night, but I, I won the trophy and all of a sudden realize that when you know what to say in every situation, you'll know how to lead people properly to the decision of agreement, mm. where they agree that they should say yes. And of course, that is how I, I think I did so well in real estate. And, and it's funny, you know, one thing people have always asked me, well, okay, so you became in eight years the top realtor in California. Which so, is no small feat. No. But uh, it was wonderful. Yeah. I, I just had such a wonderful time. And so anyway, the national convention, because there was one year, my fifth year, that everything came together. 
And that year, my manager calls me into his office about November 15th. And he looks at me, he says across the desk, Tom, are you aware of what you're doing? I says, what do you mean? What, what you're doing in real estate? I says, yeah, I'm having a blast. I'm making lots of money. I'm having fun. And he says, yeah, but I've been doing some figures, and you right now have averaged one home sale a day for the whole year, <laughs> which, of course, that means I might have five on a weekend and yeah. maybe one or two in the week. Yeah. But <clears throat> he says, no one's ever done it. And I called the National Association of Realtors, and if you can do 365 home sales in one year, averaging one a day, you will, at 22 years of age, be the first one ever to do it, and you're going to speak at the national convention. Wow. And so I did. Had that been done up until that point? No, wow. never. Because from memory, that was like you set the record, and that record was held for the entire century of the, the <laughs> yes. 1900s. Yes. Yeah. But, but here's what's funny about fate and life, and again, defining moments. I was asked to speak. Well, I'm, I'm 20, just turning 23. So you don't go and speak to the 5,000 people. You go and maybe speak to 150 in a breakout session. That's how they start you. Yep. So anyway, I was going on at one in the afternoon. But I thought, you know what, I'm gonna get my suit on and just see the convention start. So I'm standing in the wings with my little badge so I could be there. And eight o'clock came and 8.10 and 8.15. And the speaker was a man named Peter or Thomas Peters, who was a famous author. In fact, he wrote a book called The Peter Principle which the whole principle is people will rise to their level of incompetence mm. and how you do that and how you handle your life. Well, anyway, he was the featured speaker at eight for the 5,000. So I'm standing there with my shirt and tie and suit on, and suddenly the president of the association comes over and says, Tom, Peters is caught in LA traffic. We gotta get started. Can you go on? <laughs> Defining moment. 5,000 instead of 150. 150. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to say. And, and I'll never forget Kerwin. Uh, he introduced me. And, of course, when he said this 22-year-old man sold 365 homes last year, that's why he's here averaging one a day. And there was a gasp in the audience. Because back then, if you sold four to six homes a month, mm. you were big stuff. You were top, top of yeah. the game. Well, I walked out on the stage, got a fabulous standing ovation, which I'd never been on a stage. And I, I'll never forget, I looked out in the audience, and I said, are you all aware that I don't have much time with you because I can only speak till our featured speaker shows up, but I want to let you know there are 10 words that most of you and your people are saying when they're showing a home or taking a list and these 10 words are destroying the sale. Quickly take out a business card. Well, you heard 5,000 shirts are open and cards come out. And I said, write the first, you don't say the price of a home because the price gets them thinking about looking for more properties might be less. It's the total investment in the property. And here's 5,000 people. Price equals total investment. Down payment, that's not the words you say, it's the initial investment. 
monthly payment, monthly investment. Don't call your form a contract. They're scared to death of it. It's the paperwork or an agreement. Well, I went through the 10 words, and it, it took me 12 minutes. Mm. And suddenly the president walked out and said, so what do you think of this young guy? Well, they went nuts because no one had ever taught these 10 wow. words, which we call nasty words, and they'd never heard it. And I went back to my office, and my phone started ringing, and realtors all over California said, please come and talk and share more of what you do to list mm. and sell 365 homes in a year. And that was the start of my speaking career. Wow. I did it for free for two years. No kidding. If they'd pay my gas and maybe my room if I had to drive two or three hours and stay in a hotel, if they'd do that, I didn't charge them because I have always believed you can't get good at anything unless you do a lot of whatever that is. Mm. So I thought if I spend two years doing this maybe once a week somewhere in, the, in California, I'll learn how to really do seminars. And that's how I started learning to make an art form of communication, of speaking, of handling an audience, building rapport. So that's kind of how I got started into this. That place. is so incredible. And so at what point did you, went, did you go, okay, there's actually a commercial opportunity here. I'm going to commercialize this. Oh, yeah. Well, what I did was, <laughs> it was funny about that. <laughs> I called my friend who was a professional speaker, very successful. I says, I think I want to do this, but I don't know how much to charge. He says, well, based on what other speakers charge, I would start at this figure. And if people pay you that, it's not enough. So the next time you up it. <laughs> so, see, I'm very coachable. You tell me to do something. How do you discover price elasticity? You just keep charging more <laughs> yeah. until, it no longer, until it springs back. And so that's how I did it. And uh, all of a sudden I said, and, I, and everybody in, in the real estate business that knew me and what I was making and what I was doing when they heard that I was going to give up my whole real estate career to hopefully build a business speaking, they thought, you are nuts. But I said, I'm going to do it. Because you built like, a, I'm going to assume at this stage, like a multi-million dollar little mini real estate sales empire. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But luckily, my manager that managed me in real estate, he moved to Phoenix. And he said, let me manage you, which I needed a manager. And he started getting me booked. And for maybe 15 years, I was doing over 100 engagements a year. So you started off as a keynote speaker, did you? Yeah, I did yeah. keynote, yeah. you know, whatever they needed. And yeah. then, of course, I would pick a city. I would go and we'd put some ads out. And I, I then started hiring promoters. Yeah. And I had 35 promoters around the U.S. And then Australia, I had the top promoter in Australia and in New Zealand. And, uh, it would have been Vision Pursuit back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. But so that's kind of my background in a way, but I've had such a great life. I mean, I pinch myself and of course, you know, I'm winding down now mm. because I've had a great life. An incredible life. life. Yeah. One of the things I've observed, and you know, obviously uh, we both work in the business communities and we, we both get to see a lot of you know, information and common issues coming back. And one of the most common issues I hear from people is, ah, our sales, you know, one week they're great, the next minute they're not. And, you know, it seems to be a real issue around consistency. 
Why do you think most people struggle to maintain consistency? Is it just motivation or is, is there a little bit of a science well, to it as well? Well, there's lots of reasons, but yeah. I'll give you a few. Um, selling is a business of cycles. It's just a cycle business. And you'll have a cycle where every person you talk to, you get to meet them, you show them homes, you close the sales, you get the listings. And then just like that, the cycle can stop. Well, the key is you must increase your activities when productivity slows down. Mm. And see, a lot of people in sales, they don't want to increase pro uh, activity, which makes me make more calls, more activity, uh, knock on doors if necessary, whatever it takes to get activity to renew productivity. Mm. And so that's a thing, and I, of course, had on my desk every month the number of listings I wanted to take, the number of sales, the goals in writing. And that's another thing. Salespeople and, or business people have to really sit down and they have to do something the average American doesn't do. And the average American spends more time planning the details of their two-week vacation than all the details for their long-term success. Mm, so true. And that was one of the things I, I became such a believer in. You got to put it in writing, make a goal-setting sheet, and so forth. Yeah, right. So when it comes to the sale, like, because one of the things that I've, I've, I've heard you talk about and, and that you've written about is the importance of having a structure, have a process. Oh, yes. You know, if you want consistency, use a process. Because one of the things I've observed that creates levels of inconsistency is they may not do what works all the time. That's right. So when it comes to a framework that essentially can be, but then you have people going, well, I've got a framework, you give me a framework, but you're not from my industry. Like, how were you able to come up with a framework? And I guess what is that framework that has been now been able to apply, my understanding, in over 100 plus different industries? Yes. Well, there's basically seven fundamentals. Right. Every business activity has fundamentals. Yeah. Football has basically two fundamentals, offense, defense. Golf has basically four fundamentals, grip, alignment, the stance, and posture. And the pro that makes a lot of money in golf has mastered those and does the same basic perfect swing every mm. time. Well, that's the same with consistency in selling or marketing. Once you get a formula that works, you master it. Like if you went on a listing to list a person's home that wanted to move, if you went with me on this listing tonight, you'd hear me sit for about 50 minutes of saying certain things of how I'm going to get their home sold, how I'm going to get them happily moved. And we would go out tomorrow night, you'd hear the almost verbatim, mm. the same presentation. And even in my seminar business today, uh, they all, of course, we have a workbook for them that they take home with all the notes in it. But almost every presentation is pretty much the same. But they don't know it mm. because I know it so well. And that's what's interesting because do you think the reason that most people don't use the, the same thing that works every time is because they're afraid, well, I did that last time. I don't want to sound like a broken record. Well, you got another person, though, in front of you. So it's new to them. You're the only person who's hearing it <laughs> ten times. <laughs> so you mentioned these seven these seven fundamentals. Now, you know, I feel very blessed because I've got an insight. You know, I've read the book. I've studied you for a long time. But for perhaps people who I either can't remember, that aren't familiar, or have never heard about like a, a sales fundamental structure sure. before. Well, but. okay. Well, prospecting is finding the right people to sell. Right. 
So that's step one, prospecting. Step one. Number two is original contact. Right. How you come across visually and verbally in the first 10 or 15 seconds when you meet a person. Then, of course, you have... Clearly, I failed in this, in, in this encounter. <laughs> <laughs> that's huge. That's huge. Uh, but then, then you have qualification, right. finding out if they have the financial capacity, are they the decision maker. And then you have your presentation, where you've got to do the presentation. Then they're going to probably say no before they say yes, which most people won't say yes till they first say no, which is called an objection. So you must master the fifth step, which is handling objections. And then the real art form, and what has built my business, is called closing the sale, which is step six. But after you close the sale, you must master the art of getting referrals, Mm. where they give you other people you can go and list or sell their home or find them a home. So those are the seven fundamentals. And anyone I've ever seen that makes a lot of money they may have never been taught the seven fundamentals, but if you analyze what they do in their day, their week, their month, they are using the seven fundamentals, in essence, based on their temperament and personality. What's the biggest mistake that you see most people making when it comes to sales in general? Well, the average person that goes into sales is an interesting extrovert. See, we have two extreme temperaments and personalities. We have the interested introvert, shy, somewhat humble, a little nervous about meeting strangers. Then we have the interesting extrovert. Yep. Interested introvert, interesting extrovert. Well, the interesting extrovert is the person that gravitates into selling naturally because they're outgoing, Mm. fun, slap on the back, talkity, 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 talkity. And I'll guarantee you the biggest mistake that most salespeople make is they are not master askers, mm. see? They, 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 the great ones learn to ask a lot of questions and, and let the other person talk. Because see, whoever's talking in a conversation is only learning what they already know, and I wanna learn what you know so I can help you make the buying decision. Mm. So questioning is probably 80% of what I teach. I heard a great saying once that questioning and listening are two sides of the same coin. If you're not asking effective questions, you're not going to have anything worthwhile to listen to. Exactly. And if you don't have anything worthwhile to listen to, that's not going to give you ammunition to ask even better questions. Exactly. Actually, it may have even come from your book. It might have. It sounds sounds familiar. It sounds very familiar. Um, And it's very true because I think a lot of people, they, they, they think that products sell. You know, one, one of the things I hear all the time, oh, my products, you know, especially in startups, my product sells itself. And then six months later, I say, how's it going? Oh, it's still struggling. Oh, I thought your product sold itself. <laughs> yeah. you know? Have you ever seen a product sell itself? Well, yes. Um, there are vehicles. For example, uh, when a brand new Mercedes dealership opens, a lot of the people are not that good, but the cars are so great and priced so well mm. that many people will overlook. And I'm just using that as one example. Yeah. But there are numerous products that hit the marketplace, and in a way, they do sell themselves. But the ones that, like the, the selling real estate or insurance or, or computers where you have to have high technical skill, those don't sell themselves. You have to really have, know the art form of questioning, listening, mm. qualifying, showing them how to, they, they'll benefit from the product. And all this is the art form of selling. Where do you think most people go wrong when it comes to the questioning process? Because one thing I've observed is 
you know, someone might have, you know, listened to one of your tapes or read one of your books and they go, okay, I've got to ask questions and they might sit down and then they'll ask a question and they, you know, the person responds and they hear a keyword and then rather than getting more information, they just dive right in. Is that something that's quite common? Yes. Yeah. I think what you have to really do is, and again, this is, takes years in a way to master the, the questions and also it depends a lot on the people like a young person in their 20s. The questions would be much different than a 65-year-old person looking to retire. Mm. So it's important you tailor-make all your questions in a way. But this And in advance. In advance. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the companies that I've trained, they're one of the largest in their industry, and I, I wrote a training program for them, and I told the managers of each office, I said, you need to get your salespeople, and this is back a few years ago before, a lot, before we had a lot of computers, they have to take a legal pad and find five to ten of the most important questions and have them as if they're in their own handwriting, as if it just came to their mind. And even though they do the same questions with every buyer, it's got to come across like, before I was coming over here, Kerwin, I thought, there's a few things I think I really should find out so I can do a better job of serving your needs. So I've written down these five questions, and I think this will help me, and I think it'll be good for your long-term benefit if I could ask them. Would that be okay? Mm, I love it. Yes, oh, please. Now, <laughs> got your goal with me. Yeah. And... It, there's nothing wrong with writing them down. It's like, hey, you took the time. But it's really important to note to note there, like you you created a permission frame whereby it benefits them to give permission. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and every question has to, I feel, do that in a way where they see that in because of the way you said it, the words you use, the skill that they are going to be happy to start answering questions. And of course, when they really like and trust you which I've always said that this, I think, is one of the most important things that you can do with people is forget selling. When you start with them, think of relationship building and think of the fact that you want to do a long-term relationship with them. I don't want to just find one product or service for you. I'd like the rest of your life to, in this industry, Mm. be the person you rely on. And that's kind of what I did. And by my fifth year... I never needed to prospect. I didn't have time because I was building such a nice referral base that people that liked me and trusted me would refer friends and relatives. And I got to the point where I never had to go after business. And that's what the ultimate goal Mm. is, to build a reputation in your business industry community where they know when they hear this word or product that your face comes into their mind. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com
the art of referral seems to be like a a, a lost art. Yes. Like with Just the new the new the new and again, I couldn't agree more. Like I, I see a lot of new generation salespeople coming through. And I see them wasting a lot of time because they're quite transactional. You know, if they make a sale or they don't make a sale, it's almost like, well, I'm on to the next one. Versus I remember back in my day, and again, you're one of the forefathers of this, the importance of whether you get a sale or not, you're always asking for referrals. That's right. Mm. And, and you know what's so nice about it is if you begin like that, you know, uh, Curran, if uh, myself and, of course, my wonderful company does a job to totally satisfy the need we have with you, and you're really happy, uh, my management's asked right out in front, if we do the job, would you mind if I ask a few for uh, names of a few other people I might serve? That's right in the beginning. Now, uh, two weeks later, a month later, we've closed the automobile sale, house sale, insurance sale, and say, remember, gosh, when we first talked that first night, I ask if we made you happy, if you could let me have two or three other folks you might know, friends, relatives, and you said, sure, well, now's the time for that. Mm. <laughs> and you've already got the permission in advance. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So, again, where I see a lot of people also going wrong is not really having a toolbox. And that's one thing I noticed you are impeccably good at. You've got a tool for every situation, you know. I try. And, and, well, you do. And, you know, you don't bring a hammer out when you need a saw, you know. Sure. You don't bring a, a, a saw out when you need to drill. But where I see where most people lack when it comes to having a, a good toolbox is in the area of overcoming objections. And most salespeople, when they get an objection, it's almost like they're hearing them. They might have heard the same objections a hundred times, but every time they get it, it's almost like they're hearing it for the first time. Because they don't know how to cut, you know, most people don't have a good... Um... I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, a person almost has to hesitate, procrastinate, or say some type of no before they can say yes. So a pro has heard all basic every objection, and of course I wrote out scripts I like an actor or actress, mm. which many people don't realize this, mm. but when you watch a movie made... What those folks are saying, they have rehearsed and said a dozen, a hundred times to make it natural, flow, and that's what a pro does with handling objections. I mean, I have 73 words. If you said I want to think it over, then I have my 73 words in a very wonderful script that I will deliver the same every time, but you'll never know it. Mm. And then, of course, I take from a want to think it over to a real final objection I can handle that's concrete, and then I overcome that and close the sale. Mm. And I, I think that's really important to mention. Like when you look at like Braveheart as an example, Mel Gibson, uh, <laughs> he won an, I think he won an Academy Award he for did. that. And I use an example and say, do you think he got out there and just winged that? Or do you think he practiced that over and over and over and over again? Well, you know what's funny? When I was filming our first video training system, and it was one of the first in, in the country many, many years ago, I, we did it in Hollywood, California at Universal Studio where they make oh, wow. the movies. Yeah. And it just so happened they were making a movie in the set next door to me. And so I would slip out at breaks and go and watch them film. And it was funny how an actor or actress that I had watched that made millions of dollars, famous, they would be out there in their jeans or a pair of Bermudas, a T-shirt, and they'd be walking around with their book, their script, and they'd read it, 
then close it, deliver it to the other actor or actress, and they do this all day. Mm. Then the next day they'd come back in their costumes, their beautiful clothes. Then, same thing, the cameras are ready to roll, and they'd look down at their script, they'd then set it down, they're rolling, they'd then deliver it, and you'd never know that all that was written mm. by the people that make the scripts, and they had to learn it as a pro, and they can't wing it. Mm. I mean, they can't say, well, I don't like the way that came across. They've been given what they have to say. And I think the people at K2 Elite, I'm positive the top people, the highest income earners, they pretty much know exactly what the person across the desk or table is going to say, and then they know where they're going to take that, and that's why they do so well at the end of the year. You mentioned something I think is really quite important as a part of the sales process, which is the, the, the live practice. Right. Um, you know, I believe it's called the role play. Role play. And how important is that as a part of the sales training? Because it's one, I guess it's one thing to learn a script, but it's another thing to be able to deliver it in a live scenario. How much, how much do you balance between learning your lines and actually role playing with another actor or another sure. potential prospect um, in order to, you know, refine the system in the process? Well, when I started, I didn't have really a person to do this with. Yeah, right. So I would sit at my table. I had a mirror across the table, and I would look at myself and deliver the scripts. I, I really believe that many people are afraid to, f to feel that they have to learn something. But right now, we are, have memorized what we say. If I said thank you to you, you'd probably say you're welcome. Well, you learned that. Mm. If I said good morning, you'd probably say good morning. Now, these are little trite examples, mm. but it's almost like saying, I know what they're going to say, and I'm going to learn what I need to say to overcome either an area of concern or to build more rapport. And it's a learned skill, but it does take practice. Mm. And, and I, I used to practice for hours. And I, I did it, and the, obviously I could not have closed the number of home sales had I just been winging it. Mm. In your book, Mastering the Art of Sales, um, you have a tool. You basically give everyone everything, and which I love, which is one of the things I love about your toolbox. It's like you know, if you don't have your own toolbox, here's mine. Um, I think you cover how many different objection handling ha handling scripts do you cover in your? I think about thirty. About thirty. What's the top, do you mind if it's okay, like what's the number one objection that people receive and do you mind giving, like, giving sure. us your script for how do you like, well, overcome like, the I'll biggest... I'll give you an example. Bottom line, in most, let's say, overall selling situations, the real challenge will end up somehow the money. Mm. It would either be the monthly investment is a little too much in their mind or the total amount is a little more than they thought it's, it's kind of like one of the companies I work with, they are the number one swimming pool sales company. And this is the biggest objection they always get. Gee, 35000 for a pool? I had no idea that much. I thought they'd be about 30000 So in other words, Mr. Johnson, you're excited about us putting in your pool, but we kind of have a challenge here of about 5000 Is that right? Well, they automatically think we're going to lower the investment. We're not. We're simply going to say, well, if we put this $35,000 beautiful pool into your home, increasing its value, having the children out there swimming, 
do you think you might stay here 10 years? Yeah. Oh, we'll probably never sell a house. Well, so now we've got it down to a $500 a year commitment mm. to have the pool for the kids. And I'll guarantee you they'll be in there at least, even when you take a two-week vacation, they'll be in there 50 weeks. So if we look at that 500 and by 50 weeks, we're looking at 10 bucks a week. And it really breaks down to about $1.15 a day if they use it seven days a week. How can we not invest $1.14 a day for the kids to enjoy a pool? Don't you agree? <laughs> that was elegant. That was absolutely elegant. Um, when and again, I think it's really important to, to to really point out strongly that you just negotiated, but you didn't negotiate on price. Because when people negotiate on price, it, it's often a race to the it's often a race to the bottom of the barrel. Right. And so, one of the things that I love about you is it's, it's never about price, is it? It's always about value. Value. Mm. And and see, there's an exchange that's constantly taking place. The benefits and value they receive for the dollars they have to exchange for it. And that's really what you're doing in a good presentation, where suddenly this amount of money is not as important as what they will receive long term. Mm. And again, referring to your, your toolbox, um, in the book, I think you've got how many closers? Um, I have 64 closers. 64 closers, oh my God. <laughs> there really is no excuse. No. When you think there's that much information out there. Now, I've been through almost every single one of those, and I think there's maybe about 15 that I really clung on to really, really, really heavily. And again, before we even talk about the, 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 the scripts that you use, why do so many people stuff up the clothes? And by stuffing up, I mean, why do so many people mess it up? Well, because or do I, they don't, not- I don't think they were either taught the fundamentals of the actual closing of the sale, they haven't possibly been taught what questions you ask. It, it, it's kind of like one little question that I probably asked thousands of times. And it's a question that is not blatant to where it's pushy. But if I had a husband and wife sitting across from me, I'd shown them the home and they gave me all the buying signs, brought them back to the office, and we were going to go over all the financing. And so I finish everything. I've got the total investment, monthly investment. Everything is ready. And then I would just turn to the wife and husband and say, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. How are you feeling about all this so far? See, it's a beautiful question. I'm not asking you to buy. Mm. I'm asking how you feel about mm. it so far. Well, I, I, I'm pretty excited. Honey, I like the home. Well, I do too. Uh, well, what do you think? Why don't we just draft up our thoughts on the paperwork and let's see how it looks. And if it makes sense, we'll go ahead. And if it doesn't, we won't. Okay. Mary, did you have a middle initial? And I'm on the purchase agreement. <laughs> For people who are perhaps not as familiar as sales as what you and I and maybe other people, what is a close? Well, I was, and when I first was a neophyte, brand new. I heard the word closing and close, and I was turned off because I had a lot of empathy. I love people. Mm. And when I heard that term, I thought, that sounds like you're pushing them. or It sounds like you're being too aggressive. And my personal belief is that, that a close is kind of a symphony of words that builds rapport and overcomes areas of concern and leads with a final yes decision, which they are happy with. 
And that's really what it is. It's not pushy, obnoxious. Um, and of course, it comes back to another truth that people have to believe that what you're doing is truly good for them mm. and that you want it to be good for them. Uh, that's important. And as I mentioned to you, I think if you have this life value of loving people and using money, never using people and loving money, you'll have people feel that they're more important to you than you making a mm. transaction. Mm. Okay, so when we look at the close, and I think, um, you know, I've heard many other people talk about this, most people don't do it because they're afraid. Why do you think most people are afraid of closing the sale in the first well, place? Well, I think they've, they're afraid because they don't make themselves try. Mm. And they're afraid of rejection. Mm. And I have learned over the years that every no is hiding the yes. And so if I'm going to get to the yes, i got to say things to get out the no's, which I'll then overcome and end up getting the final yes, which mm. is them writing a check. And so when it comes to the close, you've got 64 closes. Every single one of them are absolute gold. What's your favorite close and how does it roll? Well, I like a couple of them. Um, uh, I like when, whenever they fight the money and they can say, you know, I think it just costs too much. Well, I, I like to say 14 words. John, today most things do. Can you tell me just about how much, too much you feel it is? Now they give me an amount of money, which isn't the total transaction. Mm -hmm. This is how much too much. Again, many of them thinking we're going to lower the investment, which we aren't. We're going to help them rationalize paying that amount of money that's too much, mm. which, which is really the art form in selling. Mm. Or, you know, like uh, I, I love the... the uh, uh, like what you did with the, the pool. You took it from a $5,000 price objection to $1.14 a day. Which is the reduction of mm. the ridiculous close. Right. And, and almost anyone can take any amount of money and you've got to, first of all, figure out how long most people own the product. You can do this in some businesses with a warranty on, let's say, a computer. Because there the manufacturer said it's going to run and we'll warranty it for five years. Well, that's how you would end up with your reduction of the ridiculous, the amount of years it's warrantied, then to the months, to the week, and to the day to get that daily amount mm. for the amount that the computer is too much. Mm. People often talk about um, how they're afraid to uh, make people feel uncomfortable in the sales process. And, you know, when it comes to the close, I'm curious to know from you, you know, we, we talk about, you know, helping people understand their problems so that they've got something that they want to move away from. Right. We're helping them get really clear on what they're looking for so they've got something that they're desirable and moving yes. towards. But when it comes to, like, the, 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 the chemistry of that, which I guess you'd call it like a form of tension, how important is it to create tension in the sales process? Well, I think it begins from the very beginning. I think the way you come across with people when you meet uh, of course, I teach this in little steps. Like you always try to have a warm smile when you first start with them. This will warm them up faster. Mm. If you shake hands with a man, it's a nice, firm, deep shake. So he feels you've got some confidence. And when you are talking to them, you must make sure you are, are looking at all parties. See, some people focus maybe on just the husband or maybe the wife. And, and you can't do that. You must spread your eye contact to everybody in the room. And you must ask questions of everybody in the room because selling is an involvement sport. And it's hard to teach this, but if you do it right, 
they almost become into a mesmerized situation with you where they're seeing the benefits, they're enjoying what they're going to have if they say yes, and it's all a, a beautiful process. But it's, again, an art form that has to be learned, mm. and that is only done by knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and learning 64 closing scripts and mm. rehearsing like an actor or actress. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, because I guess at the end of the day, and because some people go, well, I don't need to rehearse. I said, well, if you want to get paid $20 million a movie, you need to learn how to rehearse. You, you better know what <laughs> yeah. you're going to say or you're not going to be making the $20 million. Yeah. Exactly. How much, you know, we, we hear a lot of the old school sales technologies talk about the importance of building rapport. You've touched on it a number of times. Um, how much do you focus on building rapport in opening conversation versus building rapport through the demonstration of expertise and credibility in the process itself? Well, that's an interest. That's also flexible based on the age, the person, right. the situation, the product. But I, I always felt like, I wanted to spend some time, like when I would begin at it with a presentation, I would always smile and say, well, first of all, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, let me just thank you for the time we're going to share. I hope we can kind of consider this meeting somewhat exploratory, meaning my job is to analyze your needs with a few questions I have here, and then, of course, to show you the dynamic product and, and company I represent and how we can maybe do the right job for you. And so I'm going to be starting kind of by saying, do you have any questions you'd like to ask me in the beginning? So now I throw the ball to them, but I had that opening, mm. hoping to get them to just kind of relax, like I'm not going to push anything on you, I'm not going to high pressure you. I, I, I really feel that... it. it, it if you really know your product, service, believe in what you do, know that they'll benefit, and you're a very honest, truthful person, you can ask all the right questions and mm. get them excited about saying yes. Mm. I see a lot of people um, avoid the qualification around decision and money. Right. Because they're often afraid of killing the sale before it begins, which means sometimes they'll get to the very end of a presentation to someone who's incredibly polite who's not willing to raise any objections, but then they say no, and you've wasted time, you've wasted maybe a day, an hour, a week, or a month trying to sell to someone who wasn't gonna actually buy in the first place. So how do you qualify people effortlessly and easily on price and decision-making without scaring them away from the sale? Well, I always said this, you know, and let's just say now I'm on a first-name basis. Mm -hmm. uh, just for the people watching right now, I, I always started with Mr. and Mrs., the last name. I didn't jump on the first name immediately because that's what many people that are kind of sales, stereotypical salesperson, that's what they do. So it would be Mr. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson, Mr. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson. By the way, Mr. Johnson, my first name is Tom. I hope you'll feel comfortable calling me that, and I'd love to know if I might call you by your first names. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm Jim, and this is Sally. Well, thank you. Well, see, now I nicely got to a closer relationship of first name. These are all these little things. Little permissions. Little <laughs> little agreements, as you call them. Exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> lots of little agreements ultimately end to Add the big, a big one agreement. Up, right. And when it comes to qualification on the money, how do you qualify people in advance? Well, normally, they wouldn't have called or looked into our product unless they knew about how much it was. Mm. And one thing we have to realize, with the internet today, 
the average buyer, consumer, starts with more knowledge than they've ever had before. Using real estate as an example, mm. they can go on Zillow, they can find out comparables, they can learn what areas are what, and they can walk into a real estate office, meet a salesperson who's got a license full time, and they can know as much as he or she knows. Mm. So I think you've got to be more knowledgeable today, especially in the technical areas, than you had to be in the past. Mm. And, and so I try to, in my training, I try to say, guys, memorize everything about your product so you can deliver the scripts on what it is, what it does, and relax them in the beginning by mm. letting them know that you're there to serve and not to sell and look forward to uh, hopefully making them very happy. That's a great distinction. I'm here to serve, not to sell. Yes. Is that something you would actually say to somebody? Yes. And, and in fact, uh, I've always taught that if you take the dollar sign, which is all we're trying to do is help them spend their money so we make our money, but if you take the dollar sign and instead of the dollar sign, make it the S in the word service. Mm. And, and the income, the money, will come by the serving. And, and I've always tried to, to be a servant to my fellow man with the benefits. That's what I did in real estate. That's what I've done for 40 years of living on the the road uh, doing seminars mm. is trying to get up in front of people and, and have them say, I am benefiting from what this man is teaching me so I can have a better life helping others have a better life. You can give two people the same process, the seven steps, the 64 closes, the 32, yeah. was it 32 objection yeah. handling? Um, one will go and make tens of millions of dollars. Yes. And one will screw it, every, screw it up every way to Saturday. What's the difference? You know, there's a sad, exciting truth that you can't judge a person on how well they do until they go out and do it. And I have had people that you'd say would never make a dime. In fact, for many years, the highest income woman in, I think, the United States in sales was a 93-year-old great-great-grandmother. And she was so wonderful. She was the number one salesperson. Yes. <laughs> making a million and a half of income a year. Wow. And, of course, as she has passed away years ago, but as I got to study all these top producers, you know, her manager said the people after a while with her because of her feelings, emotions, the way she comes across, all of a sudden they're sitting there like they're her grandkids. Mm. And how can you say no to grandma? Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> You know, something we hear a lot, a lot, um, and again, you talk about this a lot as well, is the importance of the psychology, the importance of the mindset. Um, you know, we even hear words now being used around, you know, market psychology, marketing psychology, and sales psychology. How important is it to have a basic understanding of what a sales psychology is when it comes to impacting the process that you use? Well, that's emotional stability is, is the, the phase I call it, mm. which is, knowing the psychology of what happens when you say certain things. Like the difference between saying, so guys, uh, you ready to buy today? Well, see, that's so pushy. We, we aren't going to buy today, and you just slammed us. Instead of saying, how are you feeling about this? And hey, if you'd like, we could kind of draft up our thoughts and see how mm. it works. And All different feelings and mm. emotions. And the psychology is what happens when you say things the right way. 
And it's not about how what you people won't remember what you say, they'll always remember how you make them feel. Exactly. And how important is it for the salesperson to be not just aware of the impacts of what they say on the psychology of another individual, but how important is it for a good salesperson or an aspiring salesperson to be conscious of their own psychology that could be preventing them from doing the very things that's required in the process that you maybe give them? Well, you know, I've lived by five words as one of my beliefs that you must do what you fear most. And most top sales producers are doing that which the average or low producer doesn't want to do and they're mm. afraid to do it. And it's like picking up a phone and making more calls. It's like putting your ego on the line and going into a uh, area and talking to strangers. But I, I found that if you do what you fear most, you'll overcome the fear. And what you fear most can be what you are most fondest of after you do that. Mm. So do you have the, any little... Um because one of the things that I've noticed about r- real high performers is, that, is they, ha- they have these little statements that they make themselves. They have these little oh, suggestions. Yeah, sure. Do you do you have a set of statements or a set of suggestions? Oh, I do. I do. Um, yeah, I must do the most productive thing possible at every given moment. Now that's one of my little sayings that I say to myself. See, we all have eighty-six thousand four hundred seconds in a day. No one has any more. No one has any less. But the people at the end of their life who have been most successful are very precious with those seconds. Mm. And that's why those 14 words, I must do the most productive thing possible at every given moment, you really have to take and do the right thing with your time. Because we all have the same amount of time, but the people that seem to be most successful invest their time properly. Mm. You seem to be... Do you, do you mind if I ask how, how old you are? Are we allowed to... How old I am? I know that's because, and, and the reason I'm asking, and I, I hope it's not offensive, and you please, you don't have to answer, <laughs> is because there's probably a lot of um, younger guys out there that are making some really horrible excuses based on age and other things. And here you are, you know, you're still, you know, you're, you're one of the legends now. Like you're one of the forefathers. You're one of the, 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 the almost like the, one of the godfathers. Pinch, pinch, pinch. I know, right? But what I'm curious to know is, what drives you? You could have stopped a long time ago. Sure. But well, I'm clearly 75 yep. and wow. feel 60. And Look I, 50. And boy, my new best friend right <laughs> here. Salesman. <laughs> We're all salesmen. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean that. You look great. Well, thanks. Because you're fit. Like you're healthy. You work out every day. Every, six days a week. Oh, six days a week. I do an hour. I do 45 cardiovascular yep. on the... Stairmaster. Yeah. And then I do... Uh, lightweights just keep some tone yeah because I really feel and here again when you walk out on a stage and people are all sitting there they're judging you visually verbally and I've gone to seminars on goal setting where the man or woman teaching it is 50 pounds overweight. Mm. And I say, you got a good goal, you're heading for the fridge. So I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> so I think you have to teach, teach what you live and live what you teach. Mm. And, and so I've always tried that. And, you know, I again, I do six days a week, one hour. But what drives you? Like what gets you up, gets you out of it, gets you in the gym, gets you on stage? I just, I just really have always felt, if I go two or three days, Without my physical regimen in the gym, mm. I start feeling a little low, luggy, uh, and I, I just don't have the energy. Yeah. Because I, I, my average seminar is still 70 hours a day, so to stand on a stage and come across with all that emotion, 
for seven hours, you really have to have the energy. Mm. And, you know, last night uh, we were talking about it, and you've got to be in physically good shape if you're going to do this business. So that's one of the reasons. Yeah, right. And I think you have to look successful if you're going to teach them to be successful. Mm. And if I walked in there, you know, 50 pounds overweight, I'd be sitting there, if I were a student, saying, yeah, I see what you're doing to stay fit. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> and I see what you're doing with my money, buying yeah. donuts. <laughs> um, you know, obviously with the, the pedigree that you've come from, but the time that you've been in this industry, like you've probably forgotten more than what most people know. You've spent time with some of the greatest people who are no longer with us anymore. Yes. Um, what's some of the greatest advice or the greatest piece of advice or the greatest advice you've heard, you know, with some of the, because they say proximity is power, and you've had some incredible proximity. Oh, I have. Well, people like Margaret Thatcher, when I was in Great Britain, I had dinner with her. And wow. she, she, of course, was so gracious. She said, treat everyone the way you'd like to be treated, which is so basic and trite, mm. but it's powerful if you do when you're with any human being. How would I like to be treated is how I'm going to treat you. Um, of course, J Doug Edwards, the man I was talking about earlier, he gave me so many, you know, little sayings and things. And I've been very fortunate. Napoleon Hill, before he passed away, and he wrote, of course. You met Napoleon? Oh, yeah. Oh, he, wow. Yeah, he and I, we had a lot of fun. Oh, my gosh. Jim Rohn, who's passed away, oh, he and I him. were dear, dear friends. But, yeah, I mean, I've always been a brain picker. Mm. Uh, if for example, if I'm sitting in a room with someone who is outstandingly successful, I'll level with them. And I'll just say, you know, I teach people, and you've done so well in your life, if you could articulate, what are some of the things you feel the reasons you have become you? And I get them opening up, and now I got pearls to share with others about these people. Mm. And... Uh, you know, Og Mandino, who most people don't even know, oh, but wow. he was a genius. Yep. He and I lived a mile apart. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Earl Nightingale and I were great friends. And Og Mandino, greatest salesman in the world. Huh? Yeah. The book. He wrote the book, yeah. Greatest Salesman right. in the World. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I've had, I've had a life that, gosh, Kerman, I, I pinch myself meeting these wonderful folks. Mm. And most people who are really successful and sincere and have a love of life, they want to share. I mean, there's some people that say, I'm not giving my secrets away. Ah, give anything away, it'll come back. Mm. I feel very honored, Tom, to have you here. Um, it took 20 years <laughs> to finally <laughs> oh, meet you. 20 years. Well, because the funny thing was, uh, I remember you did an event in, um, I think it was 98, I think it was 98, 99, you did an event in Australia with Alan Pease, Brian Tracy, yes, Brad yes. Sugars. Uh, I was devastated. Because I, at the time, I, I like my first, one of my first, I think it was actually one of my, my first business went bust and I had no money. And all my friends were telling me how great Tom Hopkins was and everything else. So to have you here now is an honor and a privilege. And I feel like you've had the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants. And now we're having the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of, you know, giants oh, such so as great. yourself. That's so nice. Um, but if there's one piece of advice that you would leave everyone with, and it doesn't have to be in sales. It can just be life advice. Like the, the best piece of advice that you could give someone in order to live a happier, healthier, more prosperous and successful life, oh, what would it be? Oh, boy. All right, I want to try to get one that's pretty darn important. Let me think. Um, um, keep your mind in a positive shell. Avoid negativity and negative people. 
and focus on putting in things that are uplifting and positive because what you put in your mind through your ears will come out your mouth and that'll be the things that help other people. Mm. Tom Hopkins, thank you so much for your time. Kerwin, thank you. Thank you all too. Ladies and gentlemen, the most unstoppable man in sales, Tom Hopkins. Thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.